This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 27. We've reached the crucifixion of Jesus. This bloody, horrific scene is at the center of history. It's where redemption occurred and humanity, cursed by sin, found hope in God's Son. In the second message on this event, we see the unmasked heart of humanity. We see the passers-by that only days earlier had hailed Jesus as their king, now ridiculing him and mocking him. And we hear the men of the Sanhedrin openly questioning his divinity and missing the whole reason Jesus was on the cross. We'll be reminded today that we also have the example of the thieves on the cross, and we all must choose which example to follow as we listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Matthew 27, verses 38 through 44. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him also were insulting him with the same words. So last week we noticed four features of the crucifixion seen here described by Matthew. The conscription, the cruelty, the custom, and the conviction. They're all on your notes there. Two more. Two more features that I want to highlight to you about the crucifixion scene here, and we will learn everything we can from those. The next one we're going to call the contempt, verses 38 through 43. Now, the two robbers that were crucified with Christ probably belonged to the group of insurrectionists led by Barabbas. The reason we know that is because Matthew uses a Greek word here to identify bandits. These were the guys who engaged in criminal acts to disrupt the peace because they hated the Romans. Now, by placing Jesus' cross in the middle of these two guys, the Roman soldiers added to the mockery. But unknown to them, they were fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 12, which says that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors, Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressions, transgressors rather. So we even have reference here of Jesus interceding for them, which we will see in a moment here, the interaction of Jesus with one of them. Now, the innocent, perfect Son of God killed among the guilty and for them paints therefore a beautiful picture of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. We have here the just dying for the unjust, 1 Peter 3, verse 18. And that is a beautiful picture to see the cross of Christ in the middle of those two guys. Now, we may not be violent rioters or insurrectionists like those guys, but we share their sinfulness with everybody else. According to Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes you and me. We have all sinned and therefore fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore deserved to be on those crosses. But Jesus paid that penalty for us. It took our place. Now, not everyone in this scene 
recognize this. Not everyone in this scene saw the situation from a divine perspective here. There are two groups of people here who demonstrated contempt for Christ and for his atoning death. Look at verses 38 through 40 here to learn lessons from the fickle passers-by. That's the first group of people who demonstrate contempt for Christ here in his atoning death. The fickle passers-by. Here's the reason why I call them fickle. Rome granted limited freedom of religion to conquered people. As long as that freedom didn't disrupt the order or threaten the state. For this very reason, they also made temple desecration a capital offense. Now, the Jews who mocked Jesus in uh, his excruciating agony during this scene here that we're reading either witnessed his religious trial or heard reports of it because they repeated the charges of temple terrorism. Remember Matthew 16, verse 61. They were telling both the religious and the civil trials, this man threatened to destroy the temple. So that's how they got the attention of the Romans. So they were accusing him of that, an offense that the authorities would consider unjustifiable. Now, this is why I call them fickle passers-by, because presumably some of the same people just a week before were hailing Jesus as the king of Jerusalem, the king of the Jews. But when they, as soon as they concluded that this king didn't meet their expectation of a political Messiah, they turned against him. You see, they hailed Jesus as the king of the Jews. He's coming to Jerusalem to take over and destroy the Romans. But when they realized this, this wasn't going to take place. In fact, that Jesus was being mocked by the Romans. They said, well, we might as well join the crowd. We might as well do the same because this is not our guy. Their sarcasm at the end of verse 40 reveals their bad Christology. Look at that again, the, the sarcasm here in verse 40. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And I don't know to what degree they really understood what they were saying or they're just repeating what everybody else is saying. This is a crowd mentality here. But it, nevertheless, they are revealing their bad Christology. Clearly, they don't know who Jesus is. They don't know what he came here to do. And I'm afraid, church, that like them, many people today, just like them, turn against Jesus because he doesn't fit their preconceived notions about the mission and the ministry and the identity of Christ. They don't mind a gentle Savior. They don't mind a loving Christ, the Christ who is a friend of sinners. The problem is for them, as soon as they hear something that Jesus said from the Word of God that contradicts their worldview, then they turn against Jesus. And they'll say, no, 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 I reject that. They may embrace an apostate version of Christianity. Very common nowadays. We live in a post-Christian society. There are people who claim to be Christians, but they have no idea what the identity of Christ is, what he came here to do, and they are hopelessly confused about who he is. I'll give you an example of that. Jesus says, have you not heard or have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here's the definition of marriage here. That's Jesus' definition of marriage. So when people hear that, they say, well, wait a minute. Uh, that's, that, that goes against the progressive notion of our time. Yes, it does. And when they realize that, they may turn against him. Others, for example, may turn hostile to Christ and his followers. And when they realize he's not a social justice warrior, that he's not a Democrat or a Republican. In fact, he's not even American. He didn't come to the world to save us from bad policies, but from the consequences of sin. They also decline to follow him when they hear his claims of exclusive mediation between the Father and sinners. John 14, verse 6. He says very clearly, there is no other way. 
to get to the Father except through me. So that's usually, church, when people start turning against Christ, they will receive Jesus as long as he doesn't disrupt their dreams, as long as he doesn't disrupt their plans, their preconceived notions of life and self, or their, their, their self-perception or their worldview. As soon as they hear words like this, that Jesus is not interested in superficial devotion, that Jesus has a very different view of marriage, for example, than our day and age, and that no one can come to the Father except through him, that he's the only way... And people turn hostile because celebrities say something different. People have gotten upset with me for preaching some of these hard words from the Bible and from Jesus and truths about him. And church, maybe you'll be shocked about this. None of them were atheists. I've gotten letters from people about this. None of them were secularists. None of them were Satanists. All of them were professing Christians. I'm afraid they fail to understand we can't focus on certain aspects of Christ's identity at the expense of others. We take Jesus at face value. That's what the fickle passers-by were not doing. They didn't mind hailing Jesus Christ as the king and declaring, this is the king of the Jews, hail king of the Jews, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But when they realized, wait a minute, this guy came to be humiliated by the Romans? No way, Jose. Look at verse 40 again. The passers-by who taunted Jesus for allegedly threatening to destroy the temple failed to realize that they were interacting with the one who one day replaced that building. Remember, the Jews had a very high view of that building. That building was sacred to them. And when they misunderstood the words of Jesus, either they misunderstood or they purposefully twisted the words to say that they was going to destroy the temple, they got upset, but they failed to realize that Jesus himself will one day replace the very purpose for which that building exists. Now, John again describes that vision from the book of Revelation. He says in Revelation 21, verse 22, check this out. I saw no temple in it. And he's referring to the new Jerusalem in the eternal state. I saw there will be no temple in the new Jerusalem. He says, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. So Jesus himself will replace that temple because in the new Jerusalem, there will be no need for restriction. Everybody has equal access to God because everybody will have been redeemed. And sin will be no more. There will be no more reason to restrict the presence of humanity to the holy God because we will be talking about redeemed humanity at that time. Also, Christ's critics on that day may not have realized that Satan used them to tempt Jesus again to escape his redemptive suffering. The devil uttered the sentence, if you are the Son of God, verbatim at least twice in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4 during the temptation in the wilderness. Same words, the exact same sentence. It, this is not a coincidence. The lesson here is clear in this scene with the fickle passers-by yelling insults of Jesus Christ, being used of Satan, misunderstanding the mission purposefully or, or not. We don't know, but the lesson is clear. We must have a clear understanding of the mission and the identity of Christ to prevent being swept by every wind of doctrine, to use the language of Ephesians 4, verse 14. We don't want to be swept away by every wind of doctrine. We don't, we don't want to be fad-chasing believers. Oh, let's, let's chase this new fashion over here in Christianity. And that dies away, and there's a scandal over there, and that famous pastor is caught with a prostitute or whatever. And then let's follow this other fashion over here. Whatever my favorite theologian says, then I will follow. And then we miss Scripture because we're focused on men rather than the Word of God. 
So how do we do that? How do we make sure that we know our Christology, we know Christ, we know our Savior? How do we do that? We read, we study, we meditate on, and we hear preaching from the Word of God. We don't hear what other people say about Christ. We go through the source, to the Word of God. The fickle passers-by weren't the only ones who had a bad Christology here in this scene. We're going to learn lessons now from the failed priests, verses 41 through 43, the failed priests. The man from the Sanhedrin here, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, these are the people from the Sanhedrin. They didn't direct their insults at Jesus like the passers-by. They spoke about him. Notice that in verse 41. They acknowledged his miraculous abilities. When they said, well, he healed others, he saved others, so there's no question about that, but he can't save himself. See, in their minds, he couldn't stop his own execution. But obviously, this reveals their ignorance about the identity of Christ. They failed to remember that Jesus himself said in John 10 verse 11, I lay down my own life voluntarily. I lay down my No one takes my life from me. He said that. So what he's doing here is not, he's not being a victim of people. He is voluntarily laying his life down for his sheep. In fact, the next portion of the scene here, which we will study next week, the Bible says that Jesus yielded up his spirit. So he gave up his life. It wasn't that they took his life from him. So in their minds, he was powerless to prevent the crucifixion, but they failed to realize, no, that's exactly God's plan. Jesus is doing exactly what has been predetermined from the foundation of the world for him to die, the innocent, the perfect Son of God, God the Son, dying in the place of sinners. These guys who are mocking him, he allowed himself to be crucified to save others, including his enemies. And they failed to realize he doesn't need to be saved. Only people who are sinners need to be saved. The sinless Son of God needs no salvation for Himself. And alarmingly, church, the antagonism of these religious people reveals their dereliction of duty. Let's not miss this in this scene here. These guys, more than anyone else, should have known better than to impose unbiblical conditions for believing. These are professional religious people. They should have known that they are not in a position to say, God, I will believe you if... No, that's not their place. That's not anybody's place. First of all, Jesus had given them plenty of evidence for his identity already. Coming down from the cross would actually cancel God's plan of redemption. They should have known that. And I'm afraid, church, that even today, people willingly ignore the evidence of Christ's legitimacy. Again, people don't come to faith in Christ not because of a lack of evidence, but because of a lack of willingness to submit to him. Because they realize, okay, I'm the Lord of my own life. If I come to faith in Christ, that means He's going to have to be Lord of my life. I want nothing to do with that. And as a result of their rebellious heart, they act as if God desperately needed them to believe in Him. Have you, have you ever encountered that? For example, they, they, they usually express this view by saying something like this. And perhaps some of your family members have said that. I have heard this from family members before. I will give my life to Christ if... He heals me from cancer. Or if he gets my mother to stop smoking. Or if uh, he gets my candidate to win the elections. Or if you fill in the blank. That is such a rebellious attitude of the heart, church. And this attitude demonstrates an extremely elevated view of self and a corresponding low view of God, both of which are foreign to Scripture. We don't give our lives to Jesus. Did you know that? We know what we mean when we say this. So-and-so gave his life to Christ. We know exactly what they mean. But if we want to be exact here, we don't give our lives to Christ. Why? Because he gives us his life. According to Romans 6 verse 2, we are 
the believers who died to sin, so he gives us his life. We don't give our lives to him. He gives us his life. Consider this. You can't give Christ what he already has. And according to Colossians 1, verses 16, verse 17, Jesus already controls, owns every life that ever walked on the earth or ever will. Check this out. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we cannot give something to Jesus that he already has. He already has and owns everything in the universe, including your life and mine. Nothing, not even the schemes of the devil, not even the schemes of people, escapes the control of Jesus. We are not the givers in this relationship. We must remember this daily. We are not the givers of this relationship between God and us. Salvation, church, is not a transaction between two equals. If you ever hear a preacher describe the sovereign Son of God as the desperate boyfriend who is lost without you or someone who is desperately in need of your cuddles, run for the door. Run for the door because that is a man-centered, therefore heretical sermon. Listen to the following verses. And tell me, church, who gives and who receives here. Ready for this? 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 verses 3 and 4. 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Who is doing the giving here, church? How about Colossians 1 verse 13? He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Who's doing the action? How about uh, Titus 3 verse 5? He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Once again, church, I ask you, who is the giver? Who is the receiver in this relationship? Paul explains this type of transaction. What happens when Jesus saves a sinner? Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. I have been crucified with Christ, which means when we come to Jesus Christ, guess what happens? We die. We die to self. Not literally, of course, but we die to our own desires. We die to our own lives. But check this out. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, Paul says. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Church, you get a much better deal because now Christ lives in you. When you come to faith in Christ, you died to self. You have been crucified with Him. He comes and lives in you. Which means that now, when people look at you, they see the light of Christ. So instead of mocking, the priests of the crucifixion scene here should have said, Please, don't come down from the cross. If you do, we'll be doomed forever. In fact, thank you for taking my place and paying the penalty for my sins. That should have been their attitude. Verse 43. These unconverted religious men made reference to Psalm 22, verse 8. I hope you realize that. They paraphrase that psalm in their mockery of Christ. And what this does, it teaches us that not everyone who quotes the Bible is a true believer. That's very evident here. Next time someone claims to be a spiritual leader, don't be impressed by the title. Don't be impressed by the achievements. Instead, find out his Christology before you follow him. If a pastor or elder or priest or reverend or Sunday school teacher is confused about the identity and ministry of Jesus, 
He can't lead you to Him. He can't lead you to Christ. By default, He will lead you to a man-made tradition or the latest book or His own opinion. The next feature of the crucifixion scene here, as described by Matthew, after the conscription, the cruelty, the custom and the conviction, and the contempt, is the contrast. Verse 44. We'll finish here with the contrast. Initially, the two crucified criminals joined the hostilities. But as the hours went by, one of them realized who Jesus was and what he was doing. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us that. Luke does. Listen to Luke 22, verses 39 through 42. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Now, church, I want you to know, few interactions describe polar opposite responses to Christ more clearly than this one. What we have here is two men in the same situation. The heart of one hardens and he defies Jesus. The other one softens his heart and he repents. That guy sees himself through the eyes of God and makes the right assessment of his reality, namely that he is guilty before God, and he makes the right assessment of Jesus that not only is he innocent, but he is able to save his soul. See, that's the difference here. Therefore, he articulates saving faith by acknowledging the divinity of the crucified man next to him. Listen to Christ's response. Luke 43, verse 43. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There are so many lessons here. I'll take a few moments to extract three lessons, okay? The first lesson here from this scene is that the redeemed robber demonstrates that saving faith requires the right evaluation of one's own sinful situation. You cannot be saved. No one can ever be saved unless they realize that they are sinners and they need a Savior. No one will ever enter the right relationship with God until he or she comes to the same understanding of this redeemed bandit on the cross. Second lesson. The redeemed criminal demonstrated saving faith because the mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart. Very simple. Here, Luke 6, verse 45. Now, not everybody can articulate how they came to faith in Christ. We understand that. Not everybody is equally eloquent. Not everybody can articulate how they came to faith in Christ with the same clarity. But every regenerated heart will produce the same thoughts. Namely, that I am a sinner, and therefore I need a Savior to die in my place to give me eternal life. Otherwise, I am lost forever. However, that will be articulated. For this particular guy, he articulated this by saying, Jesus, please remember me when you come in your kingdom. Speaking of which, here's a third lesson. Jesus assures us that there is no such thing as purgatory or intermediary state after death. Because it says, today you will be with me in paradise. There is no such place. There is no place where people go where they can still atone for their sins or be good enough now that I've messed up in life. Now it's my chance in purgatory or in this intermediary state to atone for my own sins or at least wait for other people to do it for me. There is no such thing. And Jesus made it clear. The day you die, friend, you will be either in paradise or in Hades, the lower part of Hades, to use biblical language here. But speaking of paradise... I hope we all understand here that there is only one way to get there. 
through the one who was crucified in the middle of two transgressors. The one who received insults from the Romans and rejection from his own people. But most importantly, I hope you know for sure you're going there when you die. Okay, this is the most important part of the sermon, okay? I hope you know for sure you're going to heaven when you die because if you don't know for sure, I have great news. The Bible says you can know for sure. And next time somebody asks you, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? You don't have to say, oh, I hope I go to heaven because I have done some good things. No, cancel that. But the Bible says in 1 John 5 verse 13, these things have I written, John says, so that you may know you have eternal life, not as you may hope. Perhaps you will have eternal life or maybe you'll do your best and when you get there, perhaps God will be in a good mood and take you in. No, the Bible says you will know that you have eternal life because your assurance of eternal life doesn't depend on how you feel but in what God says. Please make sure that your spot in heaven is guaranteed. And again, you don't do that by making sure you're good enough. Like that nameless thief on the cross, acknowledge your sinfulness and Christ's ability to save you. Confess Him in your heart and the words will come out from your mouth. God put His own Son through the horror of crucifixion to save wretched sinners like that criminal on the cross, like yours truly, like the rest of us. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time... This is Truth with Grace.